The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is One on One with Mitch LaFond, the podcast where the rockers talk, part of the Talking Metal Digital Podcasting Network. Now, here's your host, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to One on One with Mitch LaFond. And joining me on this episode, it is Enough's Enough's Chips Enough. And we talk about the new album, Clowns Lounge. We also talk about Ace Fraley, Stephen Andler of Guns N' Roses, the upcoming Rock Never Stops Tour, and a lot more. To check me out, please head over to Twitter, at Mitch LaFond. Also, TalkingMetal.com is where you can find all of my interviews. And with that, here is the one, the only, a good friend of mine, Chips Enough. We are speaking with Chips Enough of Enough's Enough. The new album is a Clowns Lounge. Good day, Chip. Always, always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, happy holidays to you and your family. Yes. Beautiful here in Chicago, nice and cold. <laughs> well, you know what? It's not so bad in, in, in Montreal. It is, it is the holiday time, and it's been raining, actually. Uh, raining on top of snow, so it's, it's interesting. Oh, that's how ironic. It's been raining here as well, and then it snows, and then... Rain, and it no. dries up, and we actually got pretty good weather now in the in the forties. So we're very lucky for this winter time to to have weather that's this mild. Yeah, well, we'll see. the uh, The farmers' almanac is predicting that uh, January and February are going to be brutally, brutally cold across the Northeast and Midwest and Canada. So <laughs> let's see. They're they're eighty percent right. So fingers crossed. Um, Clowns Lounge, my friend. Let's let's talk about this. It is the latest album for the band. It came out earlier in December. Um, it is a collection of songs that you've had lying around. Uh, talk to me about sort of compiling this, and you know what was the idea in these songs? Were, were they totally, totally unvarnished and untouched as is, or are these reworked versions? Uh, in Sesame Street terms, it's an archival record. Okay. Uh, showcase the band as it was and, a, and as it is today. Uh, the record company Frontiers approached us, a guy named Derek Shulman. Derek used to be our old president at uh, Atlantic Records back in the late 80s, responsible for signing some of the biggest bands in the world, Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Pantera, Mr. B, uh, who else did he have? He actually had bad company and he... Uh, also signed ACDC, powerful guy. Got a great set of years. Used to be in a band called Gentle Giant. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. It's the same guy from Gentle Giant, right? Absolutely. He's the guy who came to us and said, Chip, I'd like to to get another Enough Snuff album. Can you send me a few songs that you would have? And I said, I certainly can. And uh, what better than have the original band? And I pulled out three tracks, sent it to him, and next day they called us, so we love it. Let's do a record. And I immediately went into recording mode. I had all the material. I've been saving everything from day one. Probably have five or six albums worth of material. Uh, but I wanted something that was sonically was strong. And I looked at all the stuff we did on two inch, all the analog recordings at the greater studios we recorded at. And I started finding all kinds of material. And they were all songs that had a great energy to them. And it just felt real good. And I, I listened to the recordings and I didn't want to do too much to it because I didn't want to play with the authenticity of the original recordings. I thought it, there was a beauty to it and a great electricity. So uh, I went to the studio and I did very minimal overdubs. Not, not a lot of stuff, but it took me a couple of weeks. I really fine-tuned it all. And then uh, I 
we went into the studio and mastered the record. And that took a, that took probably the longest amount of time because uh, uh, it was a very tedious process. You can only uh, you can only add, you couldn't subtract on the recording parts of it. So I wanted to make sure that we I didn't mess up uh, the original uh, recordings that we started with. And the songs are it's a great collection of tunes, all recorded live in the studio with minimal overdubs. And it's not that they're old songs. Listen, Pink Floyd, Queen, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, Foo Fighters, all these bands that put records out. Some of the songs they have are 10, 20 years old, too. They don't say it. Well, the the last Van Halen was like that, right? The the last Van Halen album. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so... Absolutely. All the bands do it, even the hip-hop guys. You know, you find material. Who cares where the songs come from? You just want to put out the best material you have. And these songs is no exception. They're strong tunes. They sat for a while. And then I found them again and realized, you know, this is a great archival record. I want people to hear it. Die Hard Enough Snuff fans and people that don't know who Enough Snuff is. I want them to hear these songs. It's uh, authentic power pop at its best, I feel. Yeah. And maybe we could have went to the studio and recorded uh, brand new, fresh new songs that were written in the last week or two. Uh, that would have cost a hundred grand. You can't make records for the budgets that are out there right now. And quite frankly, it's tough for any band out there to get a record deal. So uh, I've tried to find the best material I could uh, that was sonically strong and that would, would fit it within the budget of what we were offered. Yeah, and it does sound strong. Uh, just a quick side note for, for Derek Shulman fans uh, from Gentle Giant. He also oversaw the, the signings of Slipknot and everybody's favorite Canadian band, Nickelback. There you go. Uh, I figured I'd throw that in there. Now, back to this. Now that you've had all these songs and all these demos, does it inspire you to write a new album that sounds like this stuff and get you those juices flowing? Or since you mentioned you have like five or six albums that that are ready to go in a sense, uh, is there going to be sort of a Clown's Lounge 2 and a Clown's Lounge 3? Because this album sounds great, by the way, right? You know that, of course. Um, is there a part two and a part three? I couldn't say. It's, it's too hard to tell. I just know there's a plethora of material, and it's fresh and new, and that trips my trigger. It's a great record. We're going to go out and tour around the country and perform and play these songs live every single night. And then we'll take it from there with what the next game plan is going to be, because there really is no plan except that go out and support this album right now and not, not try to think too far ahead. However, I'm always thinking of new songs and great ideas that I, I, I feel that people, uh, I'd like them to get a chance to hear them. Uh, it's too hard to tell and answer that question right now. Uh, but there is material, there's extra material, and there's some great archival stuff that I have. Uh, but it's not easy to find these songs. This recording would be hundred grand if I was recording in the studio right now. It would cost that much. It's very difficult to go in the studio and record on two. First of all, a two-inch tape, a big two-inch tape, because it's going to cost you $375, Just And that's three songs on the tape. That's all you can get on there, 15 minutes. Uh, and you're going to go through plenty of tapes when you're recording a record. Nobody just goes, okay, here's the 10 songs. You always record 15, 20 songs. And then you pick the 10, 12 favorite ones, the strongest ones, and put them on a record. So... Uh, and that's the, that's a fun, tedious process that takes a long time. And I have my own recording studio here. However, I got to go to other places and work there as well because it makes it a little easier. And, those, and they have great engineers and producers at those studios. And I like to work with great guys. And this record was no exception. You know, Chris Shepard, 
they're putting together stuff for me over at Chicago Recording Company. He's responsible for Elvis Costello and KMFDM. And uh, I went over to Chris Diamonds over at Stonecutter Studio in Chicago as well. And he's done Alice Cooper and uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Sticks. I went to the best guys I thought here in the Midwest that know how to make great records and know exactly what to do and know all the shortcuts. And the, the only exception on this record is the band was playing together in the studio live at the same time. And that's how you make a great record. Not spending uh, and passing tapes through the mail. And uh, you send it in Dropbox. I think you're in the same room together and you're creating. That's what makes the magic. Yeah, and also not not pro-tooling it uh, to death. Now, you've got Johnny and uh, Donnie uh, on, on singing on these tracks, on a couple of these tracks. It, it, did you have to go back to them and get special permission, or was there any sort of awkwardness in doing that? Or was it like, hey, go for it. We, these are great songs. Put them out there. Uh, I, of course, I go to the guys and ask them, I, and they they were into it. And uh, that was it. I said, hey, guys, we have a deal here for the first time in 20 years on a major label. And these are the songs I'm going to submit. What do you think? And everybody goes, uh, Donnie said, he goes, there's a great energy in this. I, he goes, I understand why you're doing it. And I'm sure there's a few things in there that he wasn't happy about. Uh, maybe the first track, uh, Dog on a Bone, because he's not on it. But he didn't put up any resistance. As long as he was getting paid, he was happy. Uh, Monica, on the other hand, uh, you know, I told him about the track. He remembers when we did it with J.D. Lane. He's got respect for those bands. Uh, so I think he was happy to be included as well. It, look, it's a strong record, and we're all playing together on it. And, and, and if uh, there's a little resistance at the end of the day, when, when people look back at it, especially the band, they're going to say, man, we're lucky to have this record out here and get a chance to go out there and perform and, and get these songs maybe in a movie or a soundtrack or a TV show or a commercial, some way branded. Uh, another record is another opportunity. You're absolutely right on that, and 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 it does sound great. Now you, you do mention Janie. You've got Janie Lane of Warrant who who's singing on um, what's it called, uh, the Devil of Shakespeare, and also James Young of Styx. Uh, talk to me about how you got those guys in the studio originally. Back, in fact, when was that album? When was that song recorded? Eighty nine, I guess, somewhere around there. Uh, the Devil of Shakespeare recorded in uh, 2004 in here in Chicago at a studio that's no longer uh, oh, that in business cool. called Starfax. And uh, we called Janie and asked. The fir- our first uh, uh, inclination was, uh, who can we get to sing on this on this track? After uh, I, rec- I wrote the song with a guy named Billy Dior, who's also known as Billy McCarthy. He's uh, he writes novels, and he was putting together a book, and he says, I want to put a song in the book. Uh, would you write a tune for me? I got, I, you have a title? He says, yeah, Double Shakespeare. I said, yeah, I, know. I put together a tune. I wrote it in 10 minutes. Uh, it's a quick little ditty. And what I felt uh, w- would be appropriate and something that yeah, he could sink his teeth into as a lyricist. And uh, after pl- after recording the track, it took us a couple hours to actually get the whole song into fruition where, you know, well, you, you know something you can, you can start building on like a puzzle. Our, third, our first thoughts were, let's get Robin Zanna from Cheap Trick. And we went and approached Robin, and uh, we handed him some money, and thousands of dollars, by the way. And uh, his manager, on the corner of his eye, seen us talking to Robin and handing him dough, and came over and said, so what are you guys doing? So I would cut a deal with Robin. We're going to have to sing on the track. Wanted to sing on the chorus of a song we wrote. 
And he grabbed the money from Robin, honestly, like a little kid, and took it and handed it over back to us and said, uh, we got to listen to this song first before Robin does anything. I thought that was, you know, interesting. Music musicians, you know, you want to play with each other, you just, you just plug in and play. And, and really, there shouldn't be any uh, extracurricular activities uh, through management. It should be just between musicians and bands that's what binds everybody together. And then after a week or two of waiting, he finally got back to us and says, Robin's too busy, he can't do the track. Um, to our dismay, we, were, we thought, well, okay, what's going to be? We had no plan B. And then we talked about it and said, you know, what about Jamie Lane? He's a great singer. He's got tons of, tons of songs he's written himself. He's got beautiful pipes. Let's ask if Janie would do it. He's a friend of ours. We go back a long way. And we asked Janie, he said, I'm into it. He took a red eye from Los Angeles to Chicago, got there about one o'clock in the morning, walked in the studio at the pleasantries. He says, uh, I want to go in uh, and sing the song, but I don't want to be Janie Lane here. I want to take a, like a Bowie approach to it. And as the producer, I said, you know, I think that's great. You, you do whatever you'd like because the producer's job really is to bring out the best performance of the individual. It has nothing to do with anything else, but then you want to get a good, you want to get a good vocal take or a good uh, musical take on a song, and, and you don't want to put handcuffs on the musician. And he went in there and sang it a couple times, and Kim nailed it. And we, we loved his approach, and we took the song, and then I started building from there. I called J.Y. from Sticks, and J.Y., uh, not only a great musician, but just a classy cat, and says, uh, I'd be glad to come down and play guitar on it. And before you know voila, got it strong song for the record a lot of people have spoken about it because Jay's family and friends and all his fans they're happy to hear his pipes again and it helped elevate enough enough perception as well and between sticks and and warrant those two bands alone sold over 50 60 million records uh it's a no it's a win-win situation for all of us i think and uh it's a blessing to be able to have these guys play on a record together how many cats can say that uh, they have a record out, and they got uh, musicians from all those different bands playing on, a, on the song and the record. It's, uh, I think it's really nice. The hip-hop guys do it. They mix it up, bunch of guys together playing in the studio. There's no reason why us rockers can't do the same thing. Yeah, I fully agree. And, of course, James is, is a Chicago boy as well, right? <laughs> right? So growing up in Chicago, were you a huge fan of, of Styx and, and of James? Uh, absolutely. I've been following him for years since I've been a little kid. Uh, and I remember when they were uh, going through a transitional period and they were looking for a bass player, I thought, I'm going to get a call for this because uh, J.Y. recorded a couple of enough snuff songs for his solo records. Nice to go see his band all the time. They were terrific. Uh, but uh, that didn't pan out. Maybe it's better that it didn't. They got a great bass player right now, uh, Ricky Phillips, who I go back with a long way as well when he was in the babies and uh, everything worked out well. And JY and I just stayed friends for the longest time. And I, whenever they come through Chicago, I go see him. He's the balls of sticks. He always has been listening to his songs from snow blind and Miss America. He's got a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of energy and uh, he's a very aggressive guitar player. And I he's got a certain style. As soon as he plugs in, he's got his own timber, you know, right away. That's JY. He's so, uh, yeah, it's, it's an honor to play with him. And he, I consider him a great friend. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. Now, uh, another guy you're playing with these days is Tony Fennell, who was, of course, in Ultravox at the beginning of the band's career, or no, sorry, in, in the 90s, actually. Um, talk to me about working with Tony and, and how you uh, got Tony to go out on your touring band. 
Well, we did a lot of work together. He'd hire me all the time to play bass on certain sessions for him out in New York. I'd fly out there, play bass. There'd be a, a week a week of work out there, and I'd knock it out in a day and a half. And I, evidently, I left an impression with him because he he's always loved enough enough, and and he seemed to be happy with uh, working with me. So when the time came where I needed a guitar player and a singer, uh, he's one of the first guys I reached out to. And since he joined the band, the, the band has changed exponentially. Uh, he joined the band. Our first couple of shows were at the M3 Festival in Baltimore. And little did I know the band would wake up after that would get all this work and get a record deal. I had no idea. He, and I, Tony, Tony Fennell was definitely responsible for changing the direction of an ups and up and helping us out beyond belief. He's got, he's got a great mug and wonderful disposition and a great sense of balance as a musician. He can play every instrument. He sings his ass off. He could be a lead singer in a band, but he doesn't sound like Donnie. And uh, I, I guilt by default with me because I help produce and co-write all these songs and sing at them on the records. So it's only fitting that here I am in the front right now singing these songs. It's not an easy gig. I'm taking the place of my brother, who I consider one of the greatest singers of my generation. So uh, it's definitely a challenging gig. But hey, people come out to the shows, and it brings back memories. They want to hear the hits. They want to hear you know, new thing fly on the show, Baby Loves You. And we provide that every single night. And uh, I think the band right now is on a, an uphill uh, roll right now. It's, it seems to be doing very well. And with these tours that are coming up this year, we plan on 2017 being uh, one of the biggest years for us as far as touring goes in the last 20 years. Do do you have a a plan for a tour in 2017 at this point? Do you know who you're going out with? Yeah, absolutely. We start on the 18th with uh, Ace Frehley from Kiss. There you go. And we'll be out with we'll be out with him until uh, the middle of February, and then I'm doing Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp with uh, who was Allison Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Candlebox, Buck Cherry. There's a ton of bands on there, and they're all great. And uh, I'll do that until uh, the end of February. And then from there, we uh, go to Europe. And we'll be in Europe. It'll be the longest tour for an ups and up in Europe since we started this band. That's and, just amazing. Uh, it goes it's almost a month over in Europe. We've never heard that. We, every time we went to Europe, most American bands go to Europe, you know, to play for a week or two at the most. So it's going to be a long tour for us. And then right after that, we, we plan on being on the on, uh, Rock Never Stops tour for the summertime. So right now we've got work cut out for us all the way up until uh, August or September of 2017. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, now you mentioned the rock never stops tour. Who's on that? If I, if I may ask, or is that still sort of a secret? Uh, they're not really telling me, but I know it's a couple of huge bands. Ah, oh, that's going to be and great. We'll, we'll, we'll be lumped in there somewhere. And I'm sure it'll be full of, uh, uh, a lot of different surprises on there because uh, the bands that they're getting for that is our, our big multi-million selling bands. Uh, so it's going to be a great challenge for enough stuff going out there and playing to fans that maybe haven't followed us before, but we're going to win them over. we got a strong live show and we come out every single night, no tapes and sequences and guys hiding backstage. It's four guys singing and playing. And uh, I think that people will be pleasantly surprised. The old days of, you know, coming out with, you know, going on tour and getting in the Oscar Minor Wiener Wagon and bringing an ounce of cocaine with you and tons of bottles of Jack Daniels and, and, and more pills than a pharmacy. Those days are over with you. You want to go out and play great shows. You got to be focused and it takes a lot of discipline and uh, be a rock and roll party, but without the substance abuse. 
Yeah, and uh, it's such an original concept to hear a band say they actually play on stage these days. Uh, I know a lot of the bands out there are, are 95% tape and 5% live, so so kudos to you and, and, and uh, Enough's Enough. Let me just quickly talk about the, the vocalist situation. You mentioned now that you're singing, you're, you're, you're sort of the front man. Um, was that a, an easy decision to make, a hard decision to make? Because, you know, you, you had Donnie, he's got that voice. At any point did you sit back and say, we need to find a new lead singer for this band? Or do you just say, okay, you know what, it's about time that I do this? Yeah, I was sitting with Don one day, and he says, he, you know, he left the band a few times. He left in the early 2000s after the Poison. After we came through Canada, we did a we did a Poison tour. Yep, I remember that. We played the Bolton Theater. It was it was very successful. I was there. And, and three first we in the tour. It, uh, it fell apart. Bobby Dow hurt his back, and uh, he said, "Learn all the songs and learn all the Poison tunes because we wanted to keep the tour still going." And then he ended up just. Uh, uh, scrapping the whole thing, and that was it. After that tour, Donnie split the band. Then he came back again, 2004 or five, and we did another tour. And it didn't work out well for him. He wasn't happy with the results. He disillusioned by the business. Split again, and then the last tour with him was in 2013 over in England. Uh, 14 shows in 15 days. It was uh, a grueling tour in a van, no bus, a small crew. And uh, that tour basically uh, took the wind out of the sails. He said, I, I'm, I'm out. And uh, we continued to move on with Monaco singing, my guitar player. And uh, early 2016, after not being able to get a hold of him for months, I, I knew something was not right because you can't be in a national act and not talk to your comrades. Uh, I finally got a text from him saying he had trigger finger and he, he had to go get an operation. He had to leave the band for at least six months. And that's when I snapped and just thought back to one guy. He said, why don't you sing the songs? You know, these people are going to know it's enough, it's enough seeing you in the middle. You wrote the songs with me. You, you produced the records. You're singing out all the albums with me. You should do it. And I, that's when I decided I'll start making some phone calls. My first phone call was to Tony Fennel from Ultrabox. He said, yeah, man. And I called my old guitar player, Tori Stolfrig, and he's who plays in a band called New Black 7 as well. He's got a bunch of records out terrific singer guitar player he said you kidding me i'd love to do this and uh, that was it uh and i realized how difficult it is to take the place of my brother he never really can he's, he's so terrific uh, but he's not in a place where he, he can do this right now and i am and i'm not i'm not willing to step aside and stop and i could have went out and took the approach of bands like sticks and stone to the pilots or foreigner journey and went out and got a guy from somewhere else that, can, that sounds like him because first of all it's hard to find guys that sound like him and second of all uh how many bands do you know that have done this where one of the musicians have taken over lead vocal duties that's been the band from the beginning i can think of one that's it and that's uh genesis when peter gabriel left phil collins took over and that's pretty much the template i've taken with enough's enough yeah and i and i like to see you up there i think i think it's a great in fact, I think it's long overdue. I think you should have done this years and years ago. Um, can we uh, can we quickly talk about Stephen Adler uh, and and playing with Adler's Appetite or or Stephen for for six six or seven years? Um, how was that? And you know, what what are you are you in contact with Stephen at all these days? Uh, it was wor- great working with him, and I do talk to him periodically. I did this uh, Rocco Fantasy Camp in 
July or August of uh, this year. And I knew the class would love to see him. He's such an iconic drummer. And this band is just, uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest bands in the world, obviously. And uh, Stephen, I I called him and said, you know, I'd love you to come out and see my class. Uh, These these guys hail you out here and all. And all the musicians do as well. And Stephen goes, I'm not feeling good. I'm not going to come out, Chippy. I'm sorry. And I said, please reconsider. I'm only here for four or five days. We're playing the whiskey. Uh, If you just come on out and say hi to Paul Stanley and to the guys in the Eagles and, you know, Vinny from Black Sabbath, they'd be tickled pink and and the class would really love it forever. And lo and behold, he shows up in the afternoon. He looked great. He sounded killer. You could tell he's clean. And, you know, I gave him a lot of advice. In the old days, we'd sit in the house, Steve and I, we'd watch cartoons all day, by the way if we weren't rehearsing and a uh, family guy and American dad, he just loved that stuff. And, and we'd sit and we'd pray about uh, and talk about Guns N' Roses getting back together. That's all he wanted was to get back on and, and the throne one more time with that band. So when they called, they played Chicago here and I thought he'd be, maybe be a part of it, but he wasn't. But the following day he called me from Cincinnati and they just played the show in Cincinnati, his first show at Guns N' Roses in 20 something years. And uh, he was on Slash's bus, and he was really excited about it. And obviously, Slash, the classy guy, uh, telling Stephen, "Come on, travel with me." I thought that was that showed a lot. And uh, he's been done a bunch of shows since then as well. And 2017 turns out that it's going to be there's already 35 or 40 dates in the book right now for Guns N' Roses. So I think Steve will be a part of it. He comes out, does two or three songs a night. The fans hail it. And uh, it's a healing process for him. It's like serendipity, a moment of clarity. He gets up to get up on stage with his guys who he created with when he was 16, 17 years old. And they're playing packed places, huge stadiums. Uh, It's only fitting for a guy who suffered all of years and took such a beating. Remember, he got kicked off for doing drugs when everybody else was doing drugs in the band too, excluding Axelow. Uh, Axelow always had it pretty much together. Uh, but the other guys were out of control. It was the inmates were in the asylum back then, and uh, they just kept find a little niche in the music business that helped take them over to the next level. When they came out, it was just like Guns N' Roses. Uh, Guns N' Roses was just like Poison and Motley Crue and Epsonoff. All the bands had glam over tones, wore makeup and lipstick, were colorful, flamboyant. MTV loved it. They pushed it. Uh, for some reason, they were able to slip that glam uh, tag and turning into and they got turned into the next Aerosmith meets the Rolling Stones, and uh, I can't explain the music business. It's very finicky, uh, but those are great iconic songs. Radio plays them all the time, and you want to hit. Well, repetition is is what makes hits, and radio has always been good. And David Geffen's a genius, and he broke that band, and they did very well. And here we are now, 30 years later, and they're out playing stadiums and sheds, and other bands like us are have to go out and uh, slug it out in the van and in clubs, and that's just the way the business is. And the average life expectancy for any bands of you know, a few years, so for all of us to still be going, it's a blessing. And it goes to show uh, the tenacity and the and the framework that we've provided for our our bands and our fans that all we care about is to make great records and go out there and tour and play these songs. And we're not all built to do this, but the ones that are, well, go do it. Yeah, you know, it is amazing that that you think of all the bands that we see in local bars, and everybody has these dreams, and 
really not that many make it. And here you are, you're still going after 20, 30 years. Um, is, is there sort of a retirement plan in place where you say, okay, I'll give it another 10 and then I got to just sort of sit back here in Chicago and, you know, watch the, the, the daisies grow? Or, or do you go on as long as you possibly can and, and just keep slugging it out, as you say? Yeah, that's it. There's no retirement plan. You play, and that's what we do. We make records, and we have 20 of them out right now, counting all of our releases. Uh, it's, that's, and that's not counting all the other records I've done for everybody else. I'm probably on 60 or 70 albums. Uh, that's my legacy right there, playing music and touring around the country and putting records out. That's it. And there's no uh, anybody who puts plans together like that. Maybe the Stones have done that because those guys made a brink truck full of money. The ones that have done very well and sold millions and millions of records and, and, and put together and they have an account and put together a contingency plan for when it's all going to end. Well, God bless them. But for bands like us, it's about getting up every single day and work and we're all one paycheck away from being out in the street. That, that's that, that Midwestern work ethic. And I, you know, I love hearing that and I'd love to hear more bands that, that, that have that. You got to get up and you got to just do it. You know, nothing comes to you. Uh, Chip, Always, always a pleasure. There, there's so much we more we could we could cover, but I guess we'll keep it for the for the next one. It's 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 great, and hopefully we'll get to see a, an Ace Frehley uh, Enough's Enough tour or, or show in in Canada at some point. Well, it's nice that Ace has been kind of. We did a couple of shows uh, this year or in the middle of the year with Ace. All of them completely sold out, jam packed. He, he he sells out everywhere he goes, and uh, he's straight and focused right now. He looks terrific. Uh, and there's rumors out there that he might one day be back with Kiss again. Uh, who knows what what uh, the music business has to offer because there's so much uh, dough out there that uh, you know you can buy your way in. Uh, you know, you put together Kiss and it's the original guys again. Look what's going to happen. There'll be stadiums and sheds for them as well. Um, I don't know what the future holds. I just know that right now Ace is in a good place. He's got a brand new record out. He's got a killer band with him. And I think we're a good support group for them to take out. Uh, he's got nothing to worry about. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a, it'll be like a little, uh, what do I always say? It'll be like a indoor mini Woodstock without the mud. Bring the peace signs and peace. <laughs> That's be a funny. Show. Yeah, no, it's going to be a great show. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And, and, uh, who knows about Ace going back to uh, to Kiss? But uh, you're right, though. There, there's a lot of money in them in them hills if they decide to to mine them, right? So let's let's see. I, I'd love to see it. Uh, well, remember remember they got remember they got Doc McGee managing him, uh, and he could tuck the dog off a meat truck. He's one of the greatest rock managers of all time. So if anybody can put it together, it's Doc. But I think Ace is in a good place right now. He's focused on his solo career. He's got some great songs. He's got a wonderful label that's behind him right now. And, uh, I, I, you know, like, that's the great thing about the music business. There's always surprises and, and wonderful things that come up and people are, get excited about that. So let the Internet go crazy and worry about that. I'm going to worry about showing up at the shows, focused and ready to go and kick some ass every single night. And I hope to see all my friends and fans out there who have supported us for years attending as well. Yeah, they will. And uh, let's just say that if they if they do do a reunion, uh, enough's enough has to be the opening band. Uh, Chip, always, always a pleasure, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you on the road in 2017. Mitch, I wish you and your family nothing but the best. Looking forward to seeing you in 2017, brother. Thank you, sir. Beautiful, bro. 
And there you have it, folks, my interview with Chips Enough of the band's Enough's Enough. The new album is Clown's Lounge. Please make sure to check out the band On the Road, all of 2017 and beyond. While you're checking stuff out, head over to Twitter at Mitch Lafon and paypal.me forward slash Mitch Lafon, should you care to support the podcast. And also head over to TalkingMetal.com. You will find all of my interviews and a lot, lot more. And with that, I bid you a fond farewell. Thank you to Chip. Thank you for listening. Uh, Auf Wiedersehen. Au revoir. Bye for now. Oh my.